raised our policy rate. One of the biggest banks in America just collapsed. That one is more expensive. The U.S. is in a rental housing crisis. Today, I'm going to talk about what happened in 2023 and what it could mean for 2024. I'm going to talk about what we saw in the economy this past year and how that could shape out for the year ahead. There was a lot of stuff that happened and I'll get into all of that and more. Silicon Valley Bank imploded. Taylor Swift went on her heiress tour. We entered the debt ceiling debate yet again. The Federal Reserve paused their rate hiking journey. The labor market, the housing market, the stock market, the crypto again, somehow inflation, Federal Reserve sentiment, gas prices, fear. It's been such a year. I know it's a new year, so I can't, I'm not gonna be this whole video being like, it was such a big year because it's January 2nd now. But this year, and I'm imagining still now because, you know, time is relative, is it, this year was tiring for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons. We had a lot of good things. We were managing to skirt a recession. We got inflation down. We managed to maintain a relatively strong labor market and still grow the economy. There were historic labor market movements like the UAW strike that allowed employees to demand more from their employers. But the key thing about this past year is that a lot of economists were wrong. 85% of economists thought that we would be in a recession by now. And I talk about it all the time, but Bloomberg published this piece in October 2022 that said that there would be a 100% chance of a recession by year end. If you look at the data that we have, we're not in a recession. And the only reason that you would be saying those things is some sort of fear-mongering. And so people were big wrong. We learned a lot of valuable lessons on how the economy works in the post-pandemic world. As Adam Ozimek writes in The Simple Mistake That Almost Triggered a Recession, why these people are wrong with their pessimistic views about the labor market being the main issue. We learned that we don't have to destroy the economy in order to save it. And I know that there's still a lot of frustration. There's still a lot of anger. And I'll get into why those things still exist. The economy can be fine but not perfect. But this same sort of oopsie-daisy analysis happened in 2022 as well when the street published their 2023 outlooks and then all of a sudden China did a complete U-turn on COVID, the weather got warmer in Europe, saving them from an energy crisis, and the Bank of Japan actually took some monetary policy action because nobody really knows ever. The word of the year for 2023 was uncertainty. That was just the vibe. Like everything was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And of course the idea that the economy can be good while still having this crushing uncertainty can feel really bad. Those two things can be true at once. The economy can be fine, but we can still live in a world where it feels like things could go wrong at any moment. Those are two separate things that we're experiencing at the same time. The world is not black and white. There's nuance and there's gray within it, which is important to remember when we conduct economic analysis. A fine economy doesn't equate to a perfect world, and it certainly doesn't mean that any problems are absent. We're still dealing with the pressure cooker of inflation, a housing crisis, compounded uncertainty from the past few years of immense social pain. And one thing that came up a lot this year was the vibes. Another day. The vibe session was really important this year, I think, because people were finally like, oh, like, 
Maybe we should pay attention to how people feel. Like, why is there a disconnect between economic data and consumer sentiment? The vibes are off. And so you saw a lot of media outlets begin to pick up the word vibe session, begin to discuss the vibes at large. And that's because vibes for better or for worse are self-fulfilling. Vibes are a self-fulfilling prophecy, and this is not new. George Soros talked about this with reflexivity, the idea that, you know, as people experience one thing, they sort of manifest it without using that exact language. Keynes developed animal spirits. The idea that how people feel matters is not a new concept to the world of economics. It's just something that we tend to forget a lot. But the problem with everything is that we always perceive things to be worse than they are, especially in the historical rearview mirror. One of my favorite articles from this year was The Illusion of Moral Decline by Adam Mastriani, which wrote about how wrong we are about most things pretty much all the time, especially in the past. As he writes, it's very easy to feel like you know something about the past without actually knowing anything about the past. I just showed you data from more than 500,000 people who were asked whether Morality has declined, and virtually none of them said, gosh, I don't know. But for them, that was the right answer. They don't know. The past is a foreign country, but we all have the vivid delusion that we've lived there for a long time and know everything about it. So we have this general perception that things are always getting worse because we have this nostalgia baked into the past. We look at the past and we're like, yeah, it was a good time. I was happy then. I still had love in my life and hope in my heart. You look at the present and the future and you're like, I have none of those things anymore. But you, st you do, you know? And also, in the past, it wasn't as good as we once thought it was. And so we have these rosy glasses on, which makes everything even more confusing. And that gets into the Federal Reserve. Another day. We achieved a soft landing. The indicators from the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the people who decide if we're in a recession, did not point to us being in a recession. And so things can feel like a recession, but the semantics of a recession don't always line up with that. We had stable unemployment numbers. Inflation seemed to be getting closer to becoming manageable. Real income is fine, there was job growth, but all throughout the year, the Federal Reserve seemed to be staring at the ceiling, being like, oh my gosh, did we make the right choice? Like, are we doing the right things? They're operating in a world of uncertainty. Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed said this line that I thought was like, really interesting. <laughs> he said, I spent enough time around Wall Street to know that they are culturally, institutionally optimistic. They're going to lose the game of chicken. And so the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment, but they are also the vibe setters. They're also looking out at Wall Street and they're saying like, okay, listen, you got to chill. You got to manage yourselves so we can manage the economy because the Federal Reserve is doing the best thing that they can with what they have, right? But that means that they're trying to manage the emotions of a bunch of 50-year-old men as well. And the tough part for the Fed is that they can't control the things that most people are worried about, like food prices and gas prices. The Federal Reserve can't go to the grocery store and be like, make this corn a little bit cheaper. They can't go to the gas station and be like, hey, make these prices at the pump a little bit less expensive. They just have to deal with what they have, which is cutting and raising rates as well as managing their balance sheet. They have to be like the penguins from Madagascar, like smile and wave boys. Just smile and wave boys. Smile and wave. While knowing that their toolkit only works for certain aspects of the economy, and it doesn't work in the way that we always thought it did. As John Sindro wrote in the Wall Street Journal about central bank groupthink, uncertainty makes it more attractive to follow the herd because getting it wrong is less costly if others are also wrong. Rate setters, particularly at the ECB and the Bank of England, have struggled to offer theoretical justifications for their actions lately, often warning about wage price spirals without their own research bearing it out. They are in a tough spot. Their reputations depend on hitting an arbitrary 2% inflation target when factors out of their control often dominate. So the Federal Reserve did what they could. They raised 
increased rates from February to May, bringing the Fed funds rate up to 5%. They then paused in June and then hiked in July and then paused from September to December, keeping rates at 5.5%, which was a lot. Everyone was really worried. It was like, oh my gosh, they keep on going. Are they going to stop? Are they going to cut? What's next? The Fed was paying very close attention to this metric called Core Services X Shelter. It's an inflation number that is a measure of everything that we need to survive, haircuts, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. The metric is linked to nominal wage growth, so the Federal Reserve is like, we, we must squash the labor market because this inflation metric that we're very worried about is very closely tied to the labor market. And so the only way that we're going to battle inflation is by making the labor market get a little orange juice squeeze, by making it a little bit harder for people to get a job. And that's the way that we're going to battle inflation. Because it seemed like that's where the inflation was coming from. Luckily, their rate hikes did not do this. It didn't destroy the market. That narrative has shifted, but it was spooky and worrying. And it just points to the uncertainty that the Federal Reserve was dealing with. And now the Federal Reserve is looking at cutting rates. They have sort of beaten inflation, right? And now it's time to normalize the economy with the very delicate balance of why to cut rates, when to cut rates, and how to cut rates without the stock market losing it. Of course, we have the concept of fiscal policy. Another day. Fiscal policy, the backdrop of general politics, made the Federal Reserve's jobs very hard. You know, it's dumb. The, the, the fiscal policy is dumb. It's dumb. Uh, the government is dumb. I try not to talk about that a lot, but I think that just what we saw this year with the debt ceiling debacle is so indicative of what's going on. So they blew a ton of money on time and energy on the debt ceiling, more than they appropriated to the National Park Service over the past five years. We're going to battle about money to the point that we waste money. Like, <laughs> that makes sense. That's a smart thing to do. But the dumb worked, right? Like, so big fiscal actually saved the economy. Big fiscal saved the labor market. The United States was able to have stronger growth than any major higher income country while having lower inflation rates than Japan, which is phenomenal. And the frying pan charts developed by Alex Williams over at Employ America are very emblematic of how successful fiscal policy was. You can see not only where the government was able to spin to the point that the economy was right at where we should be according to the 2019 trend line, but also even surpassed the 2019 trend line. So the government was so good at fiscal policy that not only did we quote unquote save the economy, but we also saved it to the point where it came, became like a superhero, right? Like we not only got it out of the hospital, but we were like, here's some extra strength serum, like go bench 500 pounds, dude. And the economy did, it benched 500 pounds which is impressive, but fiscal is disorganized. Bidenomics, however you feel about Biden, was successful, but it focused too much on manufacturing, something that is important, but doesn't really have impact for the everyday American. As Kate Arnoff wrote in the case for pool party progressivism, why not give people something to enjoy about decarbonization instead of just a daunting to-do list of large-scale infrastructure products? Call it pool party progressivism, a politics recognizing that the unionized workers erecting all those wind turbines and solar panels might want to go sit by the water with their friends and family after work, grow zucchini next to their neighbors, or join a rec soccer league. And people got even more mad. When student loans started back up, the housing crisis got worse, and the American Rescue Plan ended. It very much felt like, well, what's in it for us? And people saw how successful policy could be during the pandemic. The government was able to provide people unemployment benefits. And there's a paper called The Unemployment System Frozen in Amber that talks about when you're able to provide people some sort of money, some sort of mental safety net, that they can go and explore what they're truly passionate about or go get a job and do training for something that they want to do or feel like they could do, that helps grow the economy. Helping people helps 
everything. And so I think a lot of people were hurt by the idea that like the government can, but they won't. If he wanted to, he would. For however you feel about social programs, I don't think every social program should be kept in place, but a general social safety net would not be a bad idea. Because the latter is wonky. Another day. Part of the issue is that there isn't really a beginner mode anymore. The last card in the United States that sells for under $20,000, the Mitsubishi Mirage is being discontinued. There aren't starter homes, there aren't starter jobs, and demographics are weird. I wrote a piece with Fast Company specifically diving into Gen Z in the workforce, and I think we're going to see even more of that as Gen Alpha graduates, which is nuts, and goes out into the real world, but boomers are very, very wealthy, which checks considering that they spent a lot of time here on Earth. But there are concerns. Americans aged 70 and older now hold nearly 26% of house wealth, the highest since records began in 1989, and roughly $77 trillion in wealth is what that accumulates to. Spending by older households is up 34.5% from 1982 compared to 16.5% for younger households. And now everybody's like, well, why aren't people having children? And we have a childcare crisis because of the cancellation of the American Rescue Plan. The cost of daycare has gone up 6.8% year over year. Daycare workers are paid pennies. The childcare is heavily, heavily regulated. So that's one reason that people aren't having kids. Kids are very expensive. I also think that points to the decline in community and the problems that we have with the nuclear family, with the idea that people can go into a house and just manage having children all by themselves. You really have to rely on those around you, it seems. And I think that's what we know from anthropology. Is that the right word? Anthology? Something. Is it the clothing brand? That's what we know from the very expensive clothing brand community as important for raising children. But people are not having kids. Part of the reason is because kids are expensive and none of the world's 15th largest economies now have fertility rates over 2.1. The Economist wrote the falling number of educated young workers entering the labor market will also reduce innovation, sapping economic growth across the board. Over time, this effect may prove the most economically damaging result of the graying of the rich world, eclipsing growing bills for pensions and healthcare. And that's a very interesting take because it's not saying that the problem is the fact that we're going to have an aging population. The fact is that we're not closing the gap between the young and the old. We're not having enough young people and that is going to create even more issues than how do we take care of the old people. But we all know why this is happening. You know, kids are expensive. We have a childcare crisis, the Zoomer question, and in it, the author addresses this sort of demographic stagnation that we're facing, writing, our immense reservoirs of money and instrumental cleverness no longer look so impressive when compared to our inability to change the fundamentals of life. A country which neglects the development of its people, institutions, and environment will have no success in transforming itself, especially if it aims to recapture the industrial capacity that depended ultimately on social facts that no longer exist. We are thrown back embarrassed on the most basic questions, not even an empire's worth of effort can compensate for our intolerance of treehouses for children. We must learn to speak of true education, of health, food cities, and sculpted land. We must speak intelligibly or not at all. So we have a good economy, but we have these flashing caution signs lining the economic highway. Another day. The labor market. The labor market was weird. There was an incentive for the Fed to destroy it to get inflation down. The media then came up with all of these horrible terms to describe it, including quiet quitting and the great resignation, which one would say probably to the media outlets, please get a grip, talk about things in a normal fashion because you're freaking people out and you're part of the problem. And all of those words just meant that we had a tight labor market, that employees were finally able to go to employers and say, well, buddy, 
who else is going to take this job? You need me. And that created wage increases, et cetera, et cetera. And a tight labor market could be inflationary. So blah, blah, blah. Everybody was freaking out. The labor market was really bifurcated too. We had a tech session. Tech had layoffs, partly because uh, they were in a new normal that they were not used to. The big tech companies were like, oh, the Federal Reserve is raising rates. Money is now expensive. No more beanbag chairs and endless burrito bars. We had to figure this out. And this happened for a few reasons. The pandemic was a tech bubble. Growth firms are rate sensitive. So the Fed hikes, we are or were in an advertising recession. And then there was an element of social contagion. If one firm is firing, the rest are going to as well. And of course, big tech began to hire again, but we had exited this golden era that a lot of people were really reliant on. And those people in tech have a bit of a mouthpiece when we think about the media. And of course, it's tragic if anybody ever loses their job. I don't think that's ever anything to celebrate, but tech was in some sort of wake up call that they extrapolated to the broader economy. And it's like, Hey buddy, you're screaming in a silo right now. And the echo that you hear is you. And there are other parts of the labor market that suffered too, but other industries thrived, healthcare, manufacturing, etc. all experienced growth. In fact, we saw huge labor market gains in two ways. Number one being the strikes, the United Auto Workers strike and the writer's strike. And then we saw wage growth for the first time in forever, lower income workers actually experienced increasing wages. And there are a lot of things that we can do to fix the labor market. Number one is improving immigration. Economists predict that doubling the H-1B visa cap from 65,000 to 130,000 would increase the GDP per capita growth in the United States by almost 10%. There are also massive opportunities to improve parental leave options and improve options for people with disabilities. We can also improve training. A lot of people want to do trade stuff. A lot of people want to be electricians, but there's nobody to train them. The article to ditch fossil fuels inadvertently highlighted this while talking about how the electricians were talking about how nobody wants to work anymore. They wrote the number one reason for all of the job openings, available candidates are not qualified to work in the industry, which is an industry problem to solve train people up. People want to work. That's the one thing that we learned. The share of prime age working Americans with a job was 80.8% in April, the highest since 2001, and well above the 25 year average. The percentage of 25 to 54 year olds employed, the prime age employment rate is the highest it's been since 2001. And now how AI will impact all of this is unknown. We've kind of seen the bundling, the unbundling of blue collar work where different parts of that gets outsourced or gets automated. And we're seeing that with white collar work. And I think white collar work is a little bit easier to automate if you think about data entry, etc. And AI could exacerbate all that or it could be complementary. And I'm definitely hoping for the latter. Another day. the stock market. So this is the year that bonds were finally hot. Treasury bills were exciting. People were like, what's going on with the bond market? Oh my God, what? And normally people talk about stocks, like they were talking about bonds and it was kind of fun. It was like, Ugh, wow, who knew that bonds could be so exciting? But the fact that treasury yields had increased so much because the Federal Reserve was raising rates was a double-edged sword. So if the Fed is raising rates, that's going to cause the yields and certain bonds to increase. And the problem is uh, those treasuries got to be financed by the U.S. government. And so the U.S. government was all of a sudden dealing with these really high yields, which were great for people like you and I who were potentially buying them, but really bad for the U.S. government. So the U.S. government was like, oh my gosh, we have higher debt servicing costs, interest payments are going to be a huge part of our little budget. And because we fight all the time, Fitch downgraded them. Fitch downgraded them because they were like, this seems unsustainable, dude. 
like you're worrying the entire world right now. With interest rates rising and a divided government, it was honestly the ideal time to reduce deficits, but of course that didn't happen because we have a divided government. Uh, rates also hit more than just government debt. It hit investment grade debt too. The surge in interest rates slammed the $10 trillion market for corporate debt even worse than last year. An illustrative portfolio of investment grade bonds sold by Coca-Cola, Microsoft, etc., is now worth $612,000 versus 1 million in early 2022. In terms of the stock market at large, Nvidia was king, Nvidia was king because they're the key to AI. Beyond that, I think this is all you need to know beyond that is Hendrik Bessemander's research. Nearly 60% of companies that have been public in the United States over the last century or so have failed to create value defined as earning total shareholder returns in excess of one month treasury bills. And only 2% of companies were responsible for more than 90% of the aggregate net wealth creation. Well, let's get into the housing market. Another day. So homes are expensive and there are not enough of them. Home price gains drove one third of the increase in inflation. There is a massive mortgage rate shock because the Federal Reserve is raising rates and there's been a huge run up in home price. There is a sheer lack of affordability that rivals that of the housing bubble. Normally a home could be bought for about three and a half times the median family income. Now it is four and a half times the median family income. Basically nearly impossible to achieve. Housing affordability has deteriorated massively over the past two years and there's a whole conversation to have about this and it gets into my favorite graph of all time. The breakdown of wealth in the United States and you can see that the bottom 50% of people all their wealth is tied into their home. And so if you go to them and you say, hey buddy, like we're gonna make more homes around you and that could potentially lower the value of your home, which a state, a Supreme Court case in New Jersey shows that that's not the case, that building more houses does not lower the value of said home. But people are so wrapped up into the home as a, a vehicle for wealth. And so that becomes entirely problematic when we address the housing supply issue. And then it's the primary cause of nimbyism is people are like, I want my home to be worth $5 million when I die. So that way, when I die, I know that I achieved $5 million in real estate wealth that I can pass on to my children. And that's the other problem. Housing is wealth for so many people. We have to redefine what wealth means and, or else the housing crisis will never go away. But it's very frustrating and it's creating this bifurcation. Those who got ZERP era mortgages and those who didn't, and then those who are going to inherit boomer wealth and those who don't. And so we have, again, this increasing gap between who can have what and who can afford what. And it's primarily because of opportunity and that's always how it is. And building more homes is the obvious solution, but the path to do that is difficult. There's zoning issues, labor supply problems, supply costs, et cetera, it's a mess. And commercial real estate is a mess too, primarily because everyone's like, well, why would we go back to the office? Why would we do that? And so US office buildings are only about 50% as full before COVID. Um, Columbia and NYU professors estimate that the value of office property across US cities is 38% lower than pre-pandemic, equaling a loss of about $500 billion. And going back to the point about AI, we could probably use AI to help solve the housing crisis, but instead we're doing things like digital girlfriends, which is fine. Like I do think that the companionship is important. I do think that having some sort of outlet for that sort of thing is important, but we have to like, we live in the real world, right? Like we live in the very real world, my feet, 
are on a carpet right now and I'm standing on earth and that's kind of where we live. And until we can port ourselves into the metaverse permanently, I do think that we have to think about how we can apply AI to the real world problems that we have versus saying like, hey everybody, like let's have a digital girlfriend that's definitely going to steal your identity and therefore the number to your bank account. I think that we really need to reconsider how we're thinking about AI. And of course this does not get into inflation, but let's talk about inflation. Another day. Kashkari said that he gauged inflation by the price of Stouffer's lasagna, and I think that's very emblematic of the broader economy. Everybody hates inflation. It was this massive pressure cooker that just boiled over too because we've been dealing with price increases for the past three years, and that's the primary cause of the vibe session and whatnot because things are expensive. According to Navigator, the aspect of the economy voters are most upset about is food prices. Not shocking given that grocery costs rose 20% from January 2021 through January 2022 compared to about 12% for core CPI. They flattened out since, but sticker shock is still there. And of course you can get more granular with inflation and figure out where it's coming from. So US fiscal stimulus contributed to excess inflation of about 2.6 percentage points domestically. Used car prices were a huge driver of CPI. Energy prices were important, but a paper came out stating that rising energy prices were not the main determinant of the surge in US CPI. Services inflation was driven by shelter mostly. COVID caused a demand reallocation shock and is able to explain a large portion, 3.5 percentage points of the increase in US inflation post-pandemic. And of course, there is a massive conversation about price gouging. The seller's inflation paper by Dr. Isabella Weber and Evan Wasner caused uproar and it got conflated with the concept of greedflation. But what Dr. Weber was really talking about was just opportunity. Firms are going to raise prices at the opportunity that they have to do so. They'll raise prices in an emergency. And is that greed? I don't know. Greed is rather subjective. Everyone got really good at pricing strategies <laughs> due to technology and other shocks that provided a safe way for the firms to raise prices. Is that greed? I don't know. And everyone was like, inflation is caused by the wage price spiral. But this actually points back to corporations too. Based on BIS data, corporate pricing power in advanced economies is at historic highs. Markups have increased significantly while trade unions are much less powerful than in the 1970s and 1980s, reflected in a decline in trade union density. People can't really go into their employer's office and be like, hey buddy, raise my wages 15%. That's not something that happens, I don't think. And this paper from the BIS confirms that. Uh, companies were raising prices and that was more inflationary than the concept of a wage price spiral. It wasn't workers demanding more money. Nestle pushed up prices by an average of almost 10% in the first three months of the year, close to the fastest pace in more than three decades. Kimberly Clark also raised its prices by 10%. Profit margins are starting to expand again. As a result, PepsiCo raised its revenue growth forecast and saw strong demand despite raising prices 13% in the latest quarter. Finally, inflation wasn't really money growth. 1% money growth leads to only an average of about 0.3% higher inflation. In other words, it's not one-to-one, -one, which Milton Friedman would be very sad to hear. As Steve Howe wrote, much up for inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Inflation wasn't really what we thought it was. Everyone thought that inflation was like the 1970s, 1980s, energy crisis, etc. But as Mike Conskill of the Roosevelt Institute highlighted, we have 1948 inflation, not 1970s. We're living in a supply side constraint crisis with a surge in demand, not the 1980s energy crisis. And now inflation is lower than when Biden took office, but everybody wants deflation now, which is 
Not great. As Nick Timoros wrote, why consumers will remain frustrated about inflation even if it continues improving, Americans usually focus on the price level or the absolute price of the things they need and want. This won't go down even if the rate of inflation moderate, right? So it's the difference between level and rate of change. So inflation measures the rate of change in prices. If inflation is slowing down, that means we have disinflation. It doesn't mean that prices are going down. It doesn't mean that we have deflation. And that's been very confusing. Another day. And so the general scope here, the economy, right? So let's talk about people. I've been thinking a lot about the development of an algorithmic self. When you go on to TikTok or you go on to Instagram or you go on to Spotify or you go into a dating app, there's some sort of algorithmic self that's been defined for you. And I think that's fine, but I also think it's becoming a little bit confusing when a lot of our personality is defined by an algorithm. So what happens when we can't separate that part of ourselves or should we even bother separating that part of ourselves? You know, who do we listen to? What is the most valuable commodity in the age of everything? It's trust. The United States has massive trust issues. Levels of interpersonal trust in the United States are far lower than one would expect given its level of socioeconomic development. And that's the word for 2024, I think, is trust. How do we build trust in the world of weird AI girlfriends, uncertain election, energy, compounded fear, I truly think that people are going to seek out trust. Rene de, de Resesta explores fragmentation and polarization of the consequences of patronage and the disintegration of trust in the new media Goliath. In a world where attention is scarce, the political media of one entrepreneurs in particular are incentivized to filter what they cover and to present their thoughts in a way that galvanizes the support of those who will boost them, humans and algorithms alike. They are incentivized to divide the world into worthy and unworthy victims. And that lack of trust bleeds into everything, media consumption, politics, labor market, etc. In the age of the crisis of work, one of the best articles of this past year, Eric Baker discusses social rot, disillusionment with existment, whoa, disillusionment, dis disillusion, dis disillusionment with existence and dissatisfaction in the workforce. With the takedown line, this is the real state of work today. Skirmishes, but no real battles, a constellation of apparently benign tumors. There's so much to be rethought around work, especially considering how, um, work actively works against our internal clocks. There was another great paper from this past year, the rediscovery of circadian rhythms, the importance of aligning ourselves to the natural world supersedes work as there may be drugs or interventions out there that didn't work because they were studied at the wrong circadian time. As Baker, going back to his piece, writes on the tech industry, once the mascot of American entrepreneurship, the entire tech industry is now in disgrace. The outright frauds like Theranos and Juicero occasionally seem preferable to the many companies that are actually disrupting things. Hopes that it might break down social barriers and topple repressive regimes having evaporated, the online content factory serves primarily as a vehicle for people to post screenshots of TV shows that increasingly appear to be written for exactly that purpose. The concept of commercialized creativity is explored in the Wall Street Journal piece, streaming is changing the sound of music with the average length of hit songs dropping by more than 30 seconds since 2000 when it was over four minutes. The face of music has changed. The face of dating has changed. The face of interacting with people has changed. And the problem is we think all of this is real and in a certain way it is. Like I'm talking to you, you're listening, but but there's a gap between that, that, that cannot be 
right now uh, overcome by the weirdness of the gap <laughs> and by the weirdness of like who are we talking to and why are we talking about the things that we're talking about when you go on spotify those songs are being designed to appeal to an algorithm when you go on hinge people are defining their dating uh, profiles to appeal to an algorithm when you go on twitter people are defining their tweets to appeal to an algorithm of course you could point to the human mind as an algorithm within itself of course we're always running frameworks of course we're always inputting data of course we're always having some sort of output but the fact that people are optimizing for one sort of type of algorithm means that we are experiencing what is a weird sort of sameness we're experiencing things converging into one like the crab convergent evolution everything is becoming a crab because everything is becoming the same because we're always appealing to some sort of algorithm and i think and i'm going to get more into my predictions for 2024 but i think we're going to see people begin to resist that in a very big way in the upcoming year because it is destroying creativity in a really terrible way and it's important to think about who's making the things that we are consuming in silicon valley's quest to build god and control humanity it's an important article that analyzes the importance of understanding the leaders behind new technology Something that the OpenAI debacle should have taught us, but I fear that we have already forgotten that ties into the internet isn't meant to be so small and how social media has destroyed curiosity. People can't be enticed to leave the app with Kelsey McKinney writing, it is worth remembering that the internet wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be six boring men with too much money creating spaces that no one likes, but everyone is forced to use because those men have driven every other form of online existence into the ground. The internet was supposed to be a place of opportunity, not just for profit, but for surprise and connection and light and this idea of incuriosity expand is expanded upon and the limits of the billionaire imagination are everyone's problem with david roth writing it's not just about so few people having so much of everything although that is plenty odious and offensive on its own merits the problem as it is experienced moment by moment and day by day is how little they have done with it and how little they have done with it has done for everyone else that inequality when compounded over time and amplified by the cretinous and absolutely joyless mediocrity of the people in whose accounts that compounding it's done winds up not just freezing the world in place but shrinking it to the size of their own in curiosity we had elon musk by twitter twitter is one of my favorite apps and i wouldn't say that he's destroyed it but i would say that you know he's throttled links as other apps do tiktok is very very infamous for doing this and they're keeping people in this weird little bubble where it's like i'm just going to keep you in this app don't leave and of course people are so curious people are still going to wander between app to app but i would say that the way that we the leaders that we have, um, they're not inspiring. And that's problematic. That's problematic. They're not like, okay, so Elon Musk is doing SpaceX and he's pushing the barriers of whatever by doing that. But you have other leaders, particularly in the venture capital industry that I'm thinking about, who are just like, like woke warriors, like anti-woke warriors. And it's like, could you do something more interesting? Could you think about things in a different way? Could you not center yourself at the center of every single conversation? It's not about you. And it's just, I don't know, Carrie Howley did this incredible interview with Jory Graham, writing how Graham's work conveys, manages to convey the feeling of time while existing as a per person on the internet, overcome, targeted, whelmed by the information that never reaches the status of knowledge, a beautiful line. She continues, a life tethered to a phone is a life tethered to oh, a present tense, a stream of insistent notifications, ding, beckoning the mind back to now. The technology is fixing us into the absolute present. 
It's like herding creatures off a cliff or gathering humans into a kind of narrow enclosure where they're highly concentrated, terrified, lulled, narcoticized, or numbed, driven by scarcity to survive in the wasteland of the absolute present. The internet beckons into a flat now, a constant attending to, a well of insistent digital need. She notices in the people around her a sense of shame without a clear source, a sense of scarcity. A sense of entrapment. There is not space for the mind to build a picture of people who do not yet exist. McKinney also touches on the idea of nostalgia, something I've talked a lot about this year. Don't make something new, make the same thing that someone else made very successful but slightly better. Nostalgia has shaped so much of our media consumption for good reasons like social connectedness, but also for reasons like pain avoidance as a service. As Derek Thompson wrote, original stories need to shoot for the moon with reviews and buzz to have a chance at 100 million, while middling, reviewed renditions of familiar IP throw up 200 million without breaking a sweat. It's all about IP too, and nostalgia play like Hot Wheels is seen as a safer bet than an original concept as Alec Barash wrote in The New Yorker. The way that we make movies now is strange too. The bodies are uncanny valley, as R.S. Benedict writes in Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny, an idea expanded upon in the beautiful piece the puritanical eye on the passivity of media consumption and the commodification of senses. Writing, the direct result of Americans viewing media consumption as an inherently political act because that is the supreme promise of Western prosperity and the religion of consumerism and because it's seemingly all that's left. We've been stripped and socialized out of any real political energy and agency. When the act of consuming is all you have left and indeed the only thing society tells you is valuable and meaningful, the act must necessarily be a moral one, which is why people people send themselves down manic spirals deciding who, what, and everything is problematic because for us, the stakes are that high now. Another day. So some predictions. I fear that I've been incredibly negative in this piece, but I have three main predictions for 2024. I think that there's going to be an influencer apocalypse and I'm not the only person thinking this. The girls aren't real anymore. People do not feel inspired by people not that they're under the bus, but like Alex Earl, who is an influencer that went to the University of Miami, had a relatively high income upbringing, it seems, and now it's just like totally separate from reality. Things like the Emmer Chamberlain debacle are very indicative of this too. It's very much simulacra and simulation where it's like, well, these people aren't real. Like, why would I listen to them? Authenticity will be key. And then I think people are gonna go analog. I think people love the algorithm. I like the algorithm, but they're tired. I think we'll return to more vintage types of production, especially in camera work, as well as certain types of graphic design. I think that people are going to be very interested in things like record players and vinyls yet again. I think that there's just going to be a little bit more resurgence of the cottage core type of world, especially because we're going to learn to live with risk. I think we sort of had a risk off year in 2023 because of the weirdness and the overhang of the pandemic, where a lot of people took pretty big risks because it was like, oh shoot, we can die. <laughs> that's something that's going to happen. And I think that we're going to see that sort of behavior begin to tick up again as people become more and more frustrated with the um, capital S system that we're all a part of. Finally, we forget how good people are. There's a piece, Elite Panic versus the Resilient Populace, where James Meigs talks about the lessons learned from the 1964 earthquake off the coast of Alaska, which reshaped the entire coastline of the shape of the state. It was very, very bad. It ended up being a study in community as people rallied together. There was no chaos, no fear, just resilience. And the people found that ordinary people can make extraordinary contributions if we trust them. Trust.
There was this interview with Martin Scorsese that probably defined my entire 2023 and will probably define my 2024 as well. The whole world has opened up to me, but it's too late. It's too late. I'm old. I read stuff. I see things. I want to tell stories, but there's no more time. Kurosawa, when he got his Oscar, when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg gave it to him, he said, I'm only beginning to see the possibility of what cinema could be, and it's too late. He was 83. At the time, I said, what does he mean? Now I know what he means. And I think time is cool. I spend a lot of time thinking about time. Time is an object. It's this beautiful article that talks about the physicality of time, uh, with one takeaway being this means the universe is expanding in time, not space, or perhaps space emerges from time, as many current proposals from quantum gravity suggest. And of course, we can return to literature with Kierkegaard stating a human being is a synthesis of psyche and body, but he is also a synthesis of the temporal and the eternal. And of course, Borges writing, denying temporal succession, denying the self, denying the astral universe are apparent desperations and secret consolations. Our destiny is not frightful by being unreal, it is frightful because it is irreversible and ironclad. Tom is a substance I am made of. Tom is a river which sweeps me along, but I am the river. It is a tiger which destroys me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire which consumes me, but I am the fire. The world unfortunately is real. I unfortunately am Borges. The passage of time is the only constant, and the uh, time will pass anyway. I think that's a big thing. There's cyclicality to our world shown in this passage from the New York Times written in 1939. All the same, he thinks that the problems of our time are probably not more vexing to us than the problems of 50 or 100 years ago were to earlier generations who also had to live with things as they found them. Dr. Lowry contributes this thought for the week to fathers and mothers who think that life has never been so complex as now. The world is going to the dogs, the children no longer obey their parents, elders no longer obey the laws, people are losing their respect for the church, immortality is rife, the world is going to the dogs, this is a free rendering of a Babylonian cuneiform inscription over 6,000 years ago. Finally, a poem. The self is no mystery. The mystery is that there is something for us to stand on. We want to be here. The act of being, the act of being more than oneself. So that's everything that happened in 2023 and what I think could happen in 2024. I, of course, will be talking about 2024 on this channel as 2024 unfolds. It will be a funky year with the election upcoming, as well as the Federal Reserve beginning to cut rates and us just managing the weirdness of the internet. So I hope that you're doing okay. I hope that you've had a good holiday season if you're celebrating and I hope the new year is bringing you health and happiness. I wish you all the best and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for hanging out. Bye.